I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot of leaves have come down this week and I must uh, get to it, raking them up to uh, fill the leaf mould bin. But uh, meantime, into the polytunnel to record this week's podcast. Just give me a minute. My thanks for this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants Limited of Pershaw in Worcestershire. Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to exchange some news, views, a bit of seasonal advice and to hopefully answer some of your gardening quandaries on the way. Getting this polytunnel was one of the best things I ever did and coming in on a sunny November day to find the temperature nearly 80 degrees is most welcome. With the gas heating prices going through the roof and all the encouragements to reduce CO2 uh, emissions, the central heating indoors has been uh, switched off this autumn and another jersey put on. But even so, it's great to get somewhere really warm and relaxing. On the leaf fall, it looks to me to be running uh, a good three weeks later than normal this year. One of the markers for me are the plane trees in London, usually naked by the time of the Cenotaph Memorial, but this year still full of yellowing leaves. This week, it's catch-up after those two days away in Holland and a number of topics needing attention after meetings and everything seen abroad. Uh, Bunny Guinness uh, emailed in and asked uh, for more information on the cut-and-come-again cauliflower. It comes from Prudac in Holland and is called Cauliflower Multi-Head F1. It's a, a cultivar that I want to try, particularly with the schools. If we could sow it early and get it harvested early before cabbage white butterflies became a problem, it could be very useful to us. But here in the polytunnel, I'm still picking some lovely large raspberries from uh, a cane that escaped under the timber edging and is now well over nine feet tall, bending down under the poly. And sometime fairly soon I must dig that cane up, put it in a pot, and then uh, next year I can bring the pot indoors to repeat that late harvesting. I remember seeing in California a polytunnel, one of the Spanish type with ventilation at the sides, filled with raspberries, I think being grown for both early cropping and late cropping. Chrysanthemums are in full bloom. Uh, I've got uh, red, 
with the golden reverse, a very pretty seasonable croissant, that is, and some yellows, and the pink Charlotte, named after Prince William and Kate's uh, Princess Charlotte several years ago. It's interesting, when it was introduced, it had green tips to the petals, but here now, growing with me in the polytunnel, it uh, has lost much of that green colouring. Over the Guy Fawkes weekend, the opportunity was taken to uh, use a bonfire to clear accumulated prunings and diseased plant material, the first of a major push in the great autumn clean-up. Now, of course, is a good time to take hardwood cuttings and an easy way to get new plants if you have the patience. Pieces of this year's growth of pencil or a little bit thicker thickness, about 12 to 15 inches long, pushed into sandy soil, will root in 12 months. Good examples of uh, propagating in this way are soft root bushes, Forsythia, a mock orange, that's Philadelphus, a flowering currant, well in fact most of the deciduous flowering shrubs, uh, including roses, and in this case often the yellow roses are some of the easiest to root. And then, of course, you know, there are the hedges and trees, privet, poplar and willow, all propagated from hardwood cuttings. What's in the news? Well, I see the Nicholson family have sold their eight-acre Fair Gardens Plant Centre in Gainsborough, Lincolnshire, to Flywheel Investment Group their sale in retirement after 40 years trading. So I would think they've uh, earned that sale. A forum at uh, the Soltex Trade Exhibition tackled some uh, significant issues. They reported that Salisbury Council banned the use of pesticides and herbicides on soft and hard surfaces. While the public had rebelled against a similar move in Brighton, because there were too many weeds. The London Council had spent four times their budget on herbicide-free regimes and equipment, but that project only lasted a year. Killing vegetation with systemic glyphosate is the most uh, cost-effective, the audience was told. Hoes and brushes cost a lot in labour. Although I noticed that the RHS uh, in their Wisley garden are already using brushes to keep the pointing on hard landscaping around their hilltop centre growth free. The visitors to Soltex were also told that fertiliser prices are likely to go up by 25 to 33% and to continue rising, certainly until the autumn of uh, 2022. It looks as if a lot of things are going to keep increasing in price. And the world's largest vertical farm on four acres in Norfolk is set to open next year and supply six and a half tonnes of leaf salad. That's uh, stuff like rocket and lettuce, leafy herbs, basil and other fresh produce every day 
it's forecast they will produce the same amount of food from the four-acre building as 1,000 acres of conventional farmland. And the vertical farming will use 100% renewable energy. We live in a fast-changing world without uh, any doubt at all. I welcome as our guest today Dr Henry Oakley. We sort of meet, I suppose, almost like passing ships in the night at horticultural flower shows, and I know Henry as a great specialist in orchids. But then, by chance, uh, I stumbled across an article in The uh, Horticulturist uh, uh, and another whole world opened up uh, with uh, his authorship uh, of uh, books on the subjects of uh, plants and medicines. Henry, shall we talk orchids first? Yes, let's talk orchids first. How did you start then? We usually expect medics to be involved growing roses, don't we, as um, a break from a pretty demanding uh, occupation? I think it's the other way around. I started in um, growing orchids when I was 15, and I didn't really become a a professional psychiatrist until I was 23. So uh, I've been growing orchids longer than I've been doing medicine. It was it was very interesting. It's a good reason why people, young boys and young women as well, should uh, get an interest in something, a hobby, which they can carry forward uh, for years and years through their career into pension life. And I started just being interested in wild English orchids. And then a, a member of the RHS council who lived down the road gave me two slipper orchids from the Himalayas. And I've never looked back. Amazing, isn't it, what a mentor can do? Yes, that was enormously encouraging. If he'd given me cacti, I would be a cacti specialist. (laughs) And I'd much rather you were growing orchids. And so you started presumably at home. Did you have a greenhouse? Yes, my mother had a greenhouse, and uh, so I made use of that. And when I was at school and at university, she watered the orchids for me. Um, But uh, when I... Eventually got a house of my own. I put a greenhouse on the flat roof at the back of the house and uh, went on from there. Now, you were pretty ambitious in taking on your first exhibit for the Royal Horticultural Society, I think. Well, my first exhibit at Chelsea was quite ambitious. I'd done a couple at the RHS halls, but uh, something like six weeks before Chelsea, they rang me up and said, Henry, Sutton's have given up their stand, which is 30 feet by 12 feet. Uh, Would you like it? And my greenhouse at that time was 12 feet by 8. So I filled that and uh, got a gold medal. (laughs) And then the next year, I thought I'd do the same again and did it. And the third year, I did it again. And after three gold medals, I decided, um, don't push your luck. And so (laughs) I've only done orchid exhibits with the Orchid Society of Great Britain, which is a a wonderful place to be a member of because of the friendships you make and the orchids you see and the talks you listen to and things like that. I'd like to go back just to that thought. I mean, Sutton's built enormous exhibits at uh, the Chelsea Flower Show at that time. And for one person to take on that size of site, leave alone from a small domestic uh, greenhouse, well, I find staggering. I think we were quite impressed with ourselves. Probably every night for two to three hours, I was staking and restaking the flowers so they pointed in the right direction, getting the photos ready to go as the background and uh, getting the moss. And then when it came to actually setting up the exhibit, we spent no less than something like 20 man hours with friends 
making sure the moss was clean so the exhibit was shown off to its best. And this is the crucial thing, get everything right. Get the moss right, the back cloth right, the plants looking neat and tidy, clean and uh, good props. And uh, it worked. But it was a lot of work. Uh, I can uh, underline that without question. How many uh, different genera did you have on that exhibit then? Um, it was just three genera, uh, Angulas, Idas and Lycastis, which is a group of orchids from uh, South America, or Latin America, the northern part of South, and up going up to Mexico. And were some of those fragrant? Yes, well, most of them are fragrant, um, with a variation of scents. Uh, there's a nice dark green one from Peru, which smells of apples, or it has a variety which smells of pears, but most of them smell of hospitals. Uh, the sort of oil of wintergreen smell, uh, which you <laughs> recognise from rugby players' changing rooms, the, the oil of wintergreen which they rub on as embrocation, and they smell of that, and it's really quite overpowering. That's amazing. I was rather expecting some of those kinds of stories from you, having some uh, indication from your books on the stories from plants but before we leave orchids a few tips for people who uh, might be growing them for the first time or perhaps just have a moth orchid or two sitting on the windowsill yes i think if you're going to grow orchids anything more than just a windowsill then you should travel abroad and see how they grow phalaenopsis the moth orchid that grows in very warm climates around the equator at sea level and when it rains it rains a couple of inches so if you want to grow phalaenopsis on your windowsill, they work much better if you keep them warm. So a good home temperature, one you can walk around in your shirt sleeves, they grow well. But they've been bred by the Dutch and others to cope with uh, English uh, central heating, which turns off at night. Uh, and not to worry, put it on the windowsill and not too close to the window in the winter. And then when you water it, remember it rains hard in the tropics, Run the thing under the tap for a minute or two minutes, a sort of tepid water. Let it drain on the side of the sink and uh, put it back on the windowsill. When it's flowering, uh, you may need to put a little stake in to hold the flower spike upright. But when the it's finished flowering, you can either cut it off at the top of the flower spike, just under where the uh, first flower came, or you can cut it off at the base. If you cut it off at the top, it uh, flowers again much more quickly. And if you cut it off the base, you get a bigger flower spike. And the one thing which makes it reflower, A, is to grow it well, and B, is the drop of temperature which occurs between summer and winter. So you'll often see new flower spikes occurring in the winter when the temperature in your house drops. Well, I think I'm doing some of those things. Um, I have two or three that sit on a very nice windowsill immediately above a radiator which sort of goes against um, all of the houseplant uh, advice one hears and reads, but they seem to quite like sitting above the radiator as long as I do that flushing through with water quite regularly. Feed it occasionally, if that's all, at uh, a weak strength of fertiliser. And when it comes to repot it, do pot it up in a slightly bigger pot using orchid bark from your local garden centre. Henry, thank you. Can we then move you on 
to medicinal plants because I think your mother again gave you advice on a dock leaf in very early days of your experience with plants. She did indeed. My mother used to say, if I stung myself with a nettle, that you had to go to a plant which grew nearby, which was a dock, and you rubbed it on. And it worked perfectly until she died. And because um, she was a nice lady and empathic and like a good GP, you know, if, if they say something, you feel much better. My mother said I'd feel better, so I did. But when she died, I found it no longer worked. This was very <laughs> disappointing. So I then thought I, I'd better get into this seriously and see whether this placebo effect extended to other things. But is that the case then? Because as an old man, I still rub a dock leaf on, on uh, stinging nettles when I'm stung. Um, well, good, good, good. Well, is your mother still alive? No. But anyway, so the placebo effect has extended beyond the grave. Well done. <laughs> well, and, and my sister, who's suffered terribly in her hands with rheumatism, got her hand stung very badly by annual stinging nettles, and the rheumatism has gone. Is that just coincidence and chance? I, I think she should patent this, so don't publish that one. <laughs> I have heard of that, but uh, I don't understand how that works. But if it's a placebo, there's no reason why placebos shouldn't work. They do work. Well, now, can you take us through uh, some of the plants named after doctors and the history against their naming? For the last 15 years, I've looked after, uh, well, taught on the medicinal garden at the Royal College of Physicians. And the Royal College of Physicians is opposite Regent's Park, and the garden is open during the week, and there are regular tours by senior physicians telling people about the plants in the garden. And they're well worth going on, but uh, do it in the spring, summer, and autumn. November, when the snow is on the ground, is not the best time. But we have there 1,100 plants from the history of medicine. About 70 or 80 are named after doctors. So Fuchsias, named after Leonard Fuchs, who wrote a very distinguished herbal in 1540s. Uh, Scopolia, from which scopolamines comes, after Antonius Scopoli, and people like that. They're, they're part of the charm of a medicinal garden because doctors used to look after the medicinal gardens, the botanic gardens. They were the only people really interested in medicines from plants, apart from the pharmacists. And so plants got named after them. And then we have about 50 plants which actually make modern medicines. Whenever you read about modern medicines, and we know there are about 7,000 medicines in the British Pharmacopoeia, and about 1,000 which are in common use, and it's always regularly stated that 25 to 50% of the medicines have come from plants. And this just isn't true. We've looked very hard in the last few years to see how many plants make modern medicines or are the source of it. We've only found about 50 out of the 400,000 plants on the planet, which have been on the planet 400 million years. And one thing which is quite clear was there was no evolutionary advantage for a plant to produce a medicine to cure human illnesses when humans didn't come on the planet or their ancestors until at least five million years ago. So no evolutionary advantage for a plant to make medicines. So how is it that plants are a source of medicine? And really very, very, very few plants are sources of medicines. One plant may make a medicine and that medicine may be changed to make a dozen different medicines and cure a dozen different diseases, but uh, that's not quite the same thing. When you think about why do plants produce chemicals at all of any medicinal value? Plants produce chemicals to stop them being eaten. Those which were edible when they came on the planet 200 million, 400 million years ago got eaten. Those which became poisonous produced chemicals to stop them being eaten. They survived the evolutionary process. 
and we use those chemicals for our own purpose. So, for example, Artemisia, wormwood. Uh, it's extremely bitter chemical in it called artemisin, and this chemical protects the plant against being eaten by caterpillars and other parasites. And if you look at your Artemisia plants, you'll never see green fly on them, you'll never see black fly or caterpillars or fungus or molds on them. They are very well defended against being attacked and being eaten. And one of the things we developed was ability that if we ate a poison, we'd get diarrhea and vomiting. If we make a tea out of Artemisia, the chemicals in it which kill the parasites which would eat the uh, plant, they also kill our intestinal parasites. And it's called wormwood for this reason, that it kills intestinal worms. And you take a drink of it and it's very bitter and it gives you diarrhoea, but it kills the tapeworm on the way through. And then there are other plants which are equally famous, uh, like the yew tree. And everybody knows how poisonous yew trees are. Just a small piece of yew tree branch, no more than six inches of leaf, will kill a horse. And uh, when they were looking for medicines from plants uh, in the 1990s, the American Cancer Institute looked at something like 2,500 different plants for anti-cancer drugs in plants. And they probably looked at 10 different chemicals in each plant, tested them on test tubes and rats and things like that, and uh, only came up with two of which paclitaxel, the anti-cancer drug from the yew tree, Latin name Taxus baccata, was one. And this is an extremely toxic chemical which stops cells from dividing. And so take it when you've got a cancer, it stops the cancer cells dividing. But it was interesting, they first found it in the bark of the Pacific yew tree, and they needed to cut down 300,000 yew trees in the northwest of the United States every year just to make enough taxol for breast cancer from uh, these, the bark. And then they found a way of getting it from the needles of the European yew. And everybody had their hedges cut and the needles, the leaves, the branches sent off to the pharmaceutical companies who extracted taxol from it. And then they discovered that, of course, taxol is produced in the plant as a defence against being attacked by fungi. And they found that there was a fungus living inside the needles of the European yew symbiotically. And that fungus produced taxol to stop the yew tree, which it was living on, being eaten by fungi. And uh, so now we can do two things. One, we can take uh, the fungi and uh, grow that in great vats of nutrient soup and make taxol from that. Or we can take the allele, the bit of the gene inside the uh, cell and put that into a yeast cell and then the yeast cell will contain the same gene as the fungus did and the plant did to make taxol. So we no longer need the hedge cuttings. Oh, I'd, I'd wondered about that because there was an awful lot in the gardening press about sending your hedge trimmings off and that, seem, that seems to have disappeared from the press. That's right. It's amazing what bioengineering is now doing. Going back to Artemisia, which kills parasites, when they were having the Vietnam War and all the Chinese and Vietnamese soldiers were getting malaria because they couldn't get quinine, which was the treatment for malaria because it was controlled by the Americans, a Chinese lady discovered that historically they'd used a tea made from Artemisia, the Chinese Artemisia, to treat malaria. And she extracted 
uh, a chemical from it, which they called artemisinin, which if you took by mouth and drank it, it uh, cured your malaria. But you had to drink an awful lot. It was not frightfully effective. So what happens after that is the pharmaceutical trade got into this and it altered the molecule of artemisinin, which is found inside uh, artemisia plants, and made it into something which you could give intravenously or by injection. And now it's become the number one treatment for malaria, supplanting quinine completely. And, of course, you needed hectares and hectares of uh, land to grow this. But once again, they get the gene from inside the artemisia plant, a bit of the gene which makes the artemisian in, and they stick it into a yeast cell, and they grow the yeast just like you and I used to grow ginger beer plants. Amazing, yeah. How, how does human nature develop those things, Henry. It, it's unbelievable, isn't it? And happening so fast. Yes, it's happening much faster now than it was, as uh, one can see from the, the vaccine for treating COVID within really less than two years. It's an amazing achievement. Um, many years ago, if you wanted to make something, for example, metformin for diabetes, it took 30 years of work on the plant, which was the source of it, which was uh, goat's rue, uh, Galega officinalis, 30 years of work to find the chemical which dropped your blood sugar but wasn't poisonous, and then altering it, altering it until they got one which is very safe. And metformin from Galega officinalis, now probably made entirely artificially, but took 30 years of dedicated work by pharmacists, pharmaceutical engineers. And so hard work is the answer. And then, of course, when we got into genetics, then people said, right, this is made by the plant with a gene in the plant. Let's take the gene out, stick it into something which we can grow easily. Uh, and what about things like foxglove and uh, deadly nightshade? Because historically, they would have always been uh, used as examples of a source of medicines. Yes, I mean, foxglove was regarded as being extremely poisonous. And it was never mentioned in any of the early... Uh, works from the Arabian physicians or the Greek and Roman physicians, people like Galen and so forth, it was too poisonous to use. And the reason it was too po they knew it was poisonous, because if you ate even a little bit of it, you were sick, you vomited. And it was so violent that uh, it was never used. And Leonard Fuchs in his Herbal pointed this out, that this, his was the first description of it. And then a man called William Withering, who was a very powerful and rich and knowledgeable GP, was on his rounds and he saw a lady with heart failure. And uh, he didn't have any treatment in 1740 for treating heart failure, so he wouldn't treat her because he was frightened anything he gave her, she'd probably die. And he came back a week later and she'd been cured by a Shropshire lady herbalist who'd given her a herbal mixture of 20 different herbs. And this lady was renowned for giving herbal mixtures which made people vomit. And the lady was cured. And he looked at all the herbs involved, and the only one he didn't recognise was foxglove. So he spent a dozen years experimenting on his charity patients with dried foxglove leaf until he found a tiny dose of foxglove leaf which would cure their heart failure. And he made careful observations on everything. He just didn't read Galen and all the historic authors. He made careful observations of what it did to the pulse, what it did to the urine output, what it did to everything. And uh, that was the beginning of real scientific observation of um, plants and medicine. But of course, you ask about deadly nightshade. That's a good example of a plant which has really, its use was only discovered by uh, about 300 years ago. Before that, it was used by 
the priestesses of Bologna, the goddess of war, as an arrow poison. And in the 14th century herbals, uh, it talks about how they used to take it and um, poison their arrows. And nobody used it medicinally until about 1700, uh, when I think it was John Ray observed that he rubbed his eye with it and he got a dilated pupil. And then very gradually they realised that it had effects on the nervous system and dilated the pupils. People used it to help cataract operations and so forth. And then gradually as the 19th century came through, people discovered ways of analysing the chemicals in plants. And they found that plants with similar families, deadly nightshade um, and henbane, are all in the potato family and these had similar ranges of chemicals which they could identify and then they could get extract them purify them and once they'd got a purified drug then they could test it and see what it did and they found that small doses did things to the pupils and the saliva and the sweating and bigger doses caused coma and unconsciousness so gradually gradually new techniques science and clinical observation took place Henry, absolutely fascinating information. It just gives another complete dimension to uh, us gardeners when we go out and look at these various plants. Absolutely fascinating. Henry, we need a word of caution, don't we, on uh, self-medicating? May I just say that self-medicating with herbal medicine is extremely dangerous. These plants spent 400 million years learning how to be poisonous and you have no idea the dose of chemical in them. So never self-medicate. Seriously, there are numerous diseases, almost epidemic diseases which come from eating wild plants. Only eat cultivated plants which have been shown to be safe because they come in a plastic bag. Thank you. <laughs> Henry, a whole series of... Uh fascinating stories with plants but but uh, i think you've published books which give us um, even more stories and uh, information on the link between plants and medicines yes there's nothing beats a book on your bookshelf to uh, you know educate one <laughs> keep one amused and entertained and to learn new things we're doing a book on modern medicines modern prescription medicines made from plants. About 50 plants which make medicines. It'll be 400 pages. It'll be published and come out. You'll be able to buy it from the College of Physicians or from the publishers, um, by the, I hope, by the middle of next year. And it's the book to see real medicines from plants, the essential guide. Uh, Henry, I might be impertinent to ask you to come back on air when that book is published, because then we can uh, remind our listener. Be delighted. Thank you. But in the meantime, if you go to the Royal College of Physicians website and uh, have a look at the books they have there, you'll see a, a range of uh, you know, half a dozen books on the history of medicine and plants from medicine. And the great thing about our books is they're written from the plants and from source literature, not too much just from uh, the internet. <laughs> Thank goodness. Henry, it's great chatting to you. I'm in debt for your time. Thank you very much for a really fascinating interview today. Thank you, Peter. My thought for the week? Well, from Oscar Wilde. Experience is the name everyone gives to their mistakes. <laughs> well... Experience certainly helps us to become uh, more successful gardeners. Uh, uh, and I'm reminded of another quote by Roger Ascombe, who said, 
It's costly wisdom that is bought by experience. The good reason then for us to learn and benefit from the advice of other experienced gardeners. Have a good week. Look forward to speaking to you again next week. My thanks for this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants Limited of Pershaw in Worcestershire. And to my producer, Rich Jarman, and of course to you for listening. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 